Welcome to Blooming Out, Indiana's only LGBTQ news and public affairs show featuring music, events, and interviews, both local and global. From the WFHB studios in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Blooming Out. Good evening and welcome to Blooming Out on WFHB. I'm Grace Thumser. And I'm Jeff Poling. On tonight's show, we have our featured music, your LGBTQ news headlines, a new edition of Trans Spotlight, and the LGBTQ area event calendar. This evening's guest is Indiana University's Mauer School of Law Associate Professor Steve Sanders. Professor Sanders, welcome back to Blooming Out. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Great. Well, there is so much going on um, right now, of course. That's an understatement, I guess we could say. But um, what's what's happening with you? Um, what's been happening lately um, in your uh, in in the world of of IU and uh, and uh, such such as that? Well, it, it, it's funny you should ask because I just came back to my office about ten minutes ago to to do the show. I just came from a campus forum, which is still going on. It began at 4 o'clock in President's Hall in Franklin Hall. It's a forum sponsored by the Bloomington Faculty Council, um, uh, uh, devoted to the question of campus community uh, in a time of conflict. Uh, the, the predominant topics were um, the university's uh, response, its obligations to its uh, students and faculty, its legal obligations, in the face of two uh, different initiatives of the federal government under Donald Trump. One is uh, a, a much more uh, ramped up and harsh policy toward immigration deportations, uh, which potentially affects students at IU, and that includes the question of whether the federal government will continue the DACA program, which does allow um, uh, 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 children who arrived here undocumented to pursue higher education. The other concern, of course, arises from the executive order or whatever new form an executive order might take, um, restricting uh, the ability of people to travel in, in and out of the United States. States if they are not full U.S. citizens. And so the forum was addressed by the president of the Faculty Council, Mayor John Hamilton, uh, Provost Lauren Robel, and a number of other people. And as I say, it was still going on. It's fair to say that this is a, a, a very hot topic and a source of concern at Indiana University. What might the federal government attempt to force Indiana University to do? What might the state of Indiana attempt to force Indiana University to do uh, to, to cooperate or potentially even help? Open force federal immigration policies, and what will the university's response be, and what is its obligation to its students and faculty? So that that's very much a live issue. Sure, sure. It's it sounds like a lot of what ifs because does anyone really know exactly what's going to happen? There, it seems to me there are just. No, I, I, yeah. I, I think not. I mean, uh, uh, there's a basic constitutional principle, and I've just mm -hmm. been teaching my students this in my first-year constitutional law class. The federal government cannot um, order uh, state or local governments or state entities like Indiana University to help implement um, uh, federal policies. Uh, the federal government can't order Indiana University to use its police department to start enforcing federal law. 
However, um, uh, state and local governments may voluntarily agree to do so of their own accord, or they might they may accept money from the federal government in exchange for doing this. I think it's safe to say Indiana University, if left to its own devices, would never agree to something like that. The right. Post has made that very clear. I think a lot of the uncertainty stems from questions about uh, what might the state of Indiana, the Indiana legislature, attempt to do that might tie into uni- uh, universities hands might restrict its uh, uh, some of its autonomy on this question right and um, it is it seems like it is uh, a state uh, decision that um, our ad- uh, administration is wanting to uh, to to put it in in the you know the hands of the the of of the state rather than you know. no, our administration doesn't want to do that. I mean, the, look, the the, real, the legal reality is that we are a state institution. We are a creature of state law. Uh, it is state statutes that create the IU Board of Trustees and create Indiana University. We get a diminishing share of our actual budget from the state, but the state in the end still controls our finances, just as the state of Indiana ultimately controls the city of Bloomington. Cities exist because they're created by states, and that means any power they have um, ultimately comes from state law. So people may not understand some of these nuances, but the fact is that Indiana University in Bloomington are ultimately subject to what our elected officials in Indianapolis choose to do, choose to tell us, you know, they they can give us as much or as little operating latitude and freedom, really, at the end of the day, as they as they want to, as they choose to. In fact, it's uh, it's worse than that. I mean, there there's some indication that the the uh, state legislature is even uh, uh, purporting to be able to apply some of its actions, such as banning the idea of a, being a sanctuary campus, even to private schools in Indiana. Wow, I I had read a little bit about that and, and the sanctuary cities and and how that could a- affect. Uh, many of us. Um, I do, do. You want to just ex- explain a little bit about what you like? You know, explain about the sanctuary city. You know, concept to those of us no, maybe who aren't familiar with it. The problem is uh, what it means to be. Uh, there is no clear, uh, a consistent, I think, legal definition, at least, of what it means to be a sanctuary city or a sanctuary campus. At one right. level, uh, it does mean when a, when a city considers itself a sanctuary city, it means that its police department will not cooperate, will not voluntarily cooperate um, with federal law, with federal laws. It won't allow its personnel, uh, uniformed or otherwise, to be essentially commandeered, uh, pressed into into the service of the federal government. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and it means that uh, entities like the Monroe County Jail, if they choose to do so, I don't know, frankly, what the county's policy is in this, can refuse to hold people. Um, let's say someone is arrested on a traffic charge, a, a domestic violence charge, they get into a bar fight, they're held in the Monroe County Jail. If um, uh, ICE uh, uh, gets wind of that and has reason to believe that person might be here illegally, they can request that the jail hold that person for an extra 48 hours while they do an immigration investigation. In many cities around the country, uh, have basically said, we don't honor those. ICE can ask us to do it, but at the end of the day, they can't force us to do it. I frankly don't know what policy, if any, so far the Monroe County Sheriff has adopted sure. regarding the Monroe County Jail. That's, that is one meaning that sanctuary 
city. You can have Sanctuary Campus. Uh, again, it, it, it's a little unclear. In some ways, it's just a, it's kind of an expression of an intent uh, of a safe environment. It, 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 it might mean that we knowingly enroll and support uh, undocumented students. It might mean that we refuse to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. I think most people at this forum I just came from basically agree that right now, although for political reasons, Indiana University has been quite adamant that it will not declare itself a sanctuary campus. And I think that's wise. I don't think there's any reason to sort of stick our thumb in the eye of, of state officials who are already right. um, uh, uh, looking at ways to exert further control over us, although we won't call ourselves a sanctuary campus. Basically, we are doing almost everything that uh, that a sanctuary campus would do. We don't ask students about their immigration status. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're here on DACA, we know about that, but DACA means that they have a right to be here, that they're here legitimately. Our uh, IU Police Department does not uh, get involved, does not ask people about their immigration status, and has not been involved in the enforcement of immigration law. So Indiana University, I think, is very wisely trying to, um, uh, uh, trying to tre tread a bit of a tightrope here, not wanting to um, sort of, you know, uh, 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 be in your face with declarations about uh, the legitimacy of federal policy and so forth, but at the same time making clear that we will maintain the maximum extent and, and assert our autonomy to the maximum extent we can unless, you know, federal or state law tells us otherwise. At the end of the day, we are a nation of laws, and so uh, I get a little uncomfortable when some people, as a couple of people who spoke at this forum, start saying things like, you know, essentially if any ICE agent tries to come into my classroom I'll resist them because I think that their their authority is illegitimate. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm again. It, it, there comes a point where we're either a nation that believes in the rule of law or we're not. Mm -hmm. But uh, but anyway, I think Indiana University is uh, is 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 deeply committed. I think anybody who heard Provost Robel and the president of the faculty council on this topic knows how deeply committed they are in principle to our independence and to the safety and privacy of students. Absolutely. Yeah, the provost has uh, sent out some emails to all the students that have been highly uh, supportive, and the whole campus, the the university, has been very supportive in this transitional time, especially uh, with the new immigration laws um, in the works. And how has the 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 communication between the university and the state been in all of this, where the state may lean a little more um, to the conservative side and the university is um, making these kind of declarations that are in support of the students who might not be legally in the country. Yeah. I, I, on these things, I'm really just an observer. I, d I don't have any inside information. One, one of the hats I wear is I, I'm a chairperson of the Student Affairs Committee of the Faculty Council, and so I attend things like the forum today, and I'm interested, and I've been involved in discussions. I mean, I'm not involved in the formulation of our lobbying strategy. I do know this, that I have on other issues, particularly in LGBT issues, marriage, domestic partner benefits over the years, had a lot of dealings with um, the, the folks who do 
represent IU. Mike Sample, who's the Vice President for University Relations, Jeff Linder, who is our main um, uh, eyes and ears and voice at the General Assembly. And I just, I, I have the highest level of trust and respect for the job they do. Um, I, I think they work incredibly hard behind the scenes to sort of defuse potential bad bills and bad ideas, to work to make sure that things, you know, don't even get to a hearing if possible. Uh, or, 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 you know, I think one thing that sometimes activists don't understand is how important quiet, behind-the-scenes political work often is and how that can be more effective uh, in, in some cases than um, just a, a sort of in-your-face activism. Now, you know, some people may be upset that, that Jeff Linder testified yesterday at the Senate hearing that Indiana University will not declare itself a sanctuary campus. As I said, I think what's important to remember is that um, even advocates of that position pretty much acknowledge Indiana University is doing everything it can right now that it's allowed to do under current law to protect the privacy of students and to not cooperate uh, uh, with uh, uh, with federal uh, 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 to, to now allow its police department to be deputized essentially by uh, immigrations and custom enforcement. The, the question is whether you know the the state will change the law in some way that prevents us, that takes away some of that autonomy. But I think the people who represent IU at the legislature are very savvy and very skilled at this. Oh, mm -hmm. I'm sure they are. Um, it seems to me that, that we are creating committees and bringing groups of, of, of organizers and, and people together to work on these issues that they probably never had to work on these issues before. Well, there is a, uh, 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 you know, sometimes I, I, I feel like this, maybe this is what it felt like to be on campuses in the late 1960s. I mean, there's certainly been a rebirth of student activism and, and faculty activism, and I think a sort of civic consciousness and civic awareness. Um, but, but one speaker, I think it, uh, it, uh, it uh, forgetting who it was, it may have been Mayor Hamilton at this thing this afternoon, basically said, look, at the end of the day, we are who we elect. And uh, Bloomington did change on uh, election day or on January 20th, but uh, we also elect the people in Indianapolis and in Washington, D.C., who uh, do have something to say over our fate. And so that kind of political engagement and awareness and participation is more important than ever for progressives. Yeah. Very true. Um, the Now, Okay, so so are you are you um, is this an ongoing regular meeting? Are there there going to be more in the future? I'm assuming it's it's going to. This is just kind of like the initial. Uh, this was a this was a forum that I, I think there there'd been talk for a number of weeks. Um, I was actually advocating a sort of public forum about why it's important to continue the DACA program to raise awareness about that because there is a group of students that's very concerned about this. But when the executive order came down, there were other students and I think uh, they sort of linked arms symbolically with the undocumented uh, students who were concerned about the executive order and, and Muslim countries and, disc and religious discrimination. So th this, was a, uh, this was a campus forum. It was just intended as a sort of a, it's one program. Uh, but this is obviously a very fast-moving and constantly changing situation. And so uh, what will come up, what the faculty council will be asked to do, what the provost and the president will be asked to do, in many ways, I don't think we can predict that right now. Absolutely. 
Uh, thank you, Professor Sanders. We're going to get back to your interview in uh, just a minute here, but we're going to take our first music break. All right. So uh, from Paste Magazine, Hooray for the Riff Raff, the working name of singer-songwriter Alinda Sagara has released the new song Hungry Ghost, the second single off of their forthcoming album The Navigator, along with a video directed by Sarah Danziger. Hooray for the Riff Raff began touring across the world at the top of 2017 and will continue through the end of summer. In a note on the video, Sagara says, Hungry Ghost captures the beauty of safe and queer DIY venues and parties. These sanctuaries will only become more important in these grave and uncertain times. Queerness is the future of our country, and we, the future generation, are aiming for the freedom of gender fluidity and intersectional justice for all people. As artists and free thinkers, we must care for each other and hold these spaces close to us. With those we lost in Oakland and Orlando in our hearts, this video is a love letter to all the queer people who are putting on intentional events that promote nights of safety, unity, and freedom. Keep up the good work. With their latest relief, here is Hooray for the Riff Raff's Hungry Ghost.
Jonathan. You're listening to Blooming Out on WFHB. We are back this evening with IU Mauer School of Law Pro- Associate uh, or, or Law Professor Steve Sanders. Um, Steve, let's talk about the Department of Justice and um, and them not enforcing the Obama administration's protection for transgender individuals' right to use the restroom of the gender they identify with. This is a really really big and hot topic right now what right what what lawsuits for example do you see coming from this area that's just one one thing we're thinking about so so, so there's actually a lawsuit that's uh, uh, on its way that well that's at the supreme court right now Uh, last week i hosted a program here at the law school called uh, uh, dignity law and transgender lives uh, we had two participants, an, an expert on transgender issues from the Williams Institute at UCLA Law School, Jody Herman, and then Joshua Block, who is an ACLU attorney, uh, who will be arguing at the Supreme Court on March 28th in the case of a, a transgender boy, a high school student from Virginia, mm-hmm. who has sued his school district over the right to use uh, the washroom that matches his gender identity. Right. The, the decision from the, from the Trump administration was not... Uns- was not unexpected. Basically, what happened was, under the, uh, it wasn't so much rescinding a law; it was rescinding legal guidance. The uh, uh, Obama administration, Department of Justice, and Department of Education took the position that the federal law that prevents sex discrimination in education, known as Title IX, also um, uh, uh, covered transgender students. That discrimination on the basis of gender identity is discrimination on the basis of sex and therefore falls under Title IX. And so the guidance we're talking about basically was uh, essentially legal guidance, not binding, but still influential and important to school districts about what their obligations are to treat transgender students fairly and consistently with the Obama administration's uh, interpretation of Title IX. Really, what this comes down to is that particular interpretation of Title IX is, is disputed. Some people say Congress, when it passed that law decades ago, couldn't have in, had in mind the idea of including gender identity as part of the protected discrimination. So really, that's the main issue that the Supreme Court will be asked to hash out in this case, does the federal law already on the books that prevents discrimination on the basis of sex, which has long been understood to uh, assist women in, in, in achieving equal opportunity in, in education, does that extend to gender identity as well? Sure. And, and so we will see. I thought one of the most interesting parts of that story was what was revealed in, in some of the reporting that Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, no surprise, he, he is a uh, he, he, he is no friend of the LGBT community and never has been during his years in the Senate. Uh, he was uh, very much in favor of this. The Education Secretary, um, who I think, uh, uh, Betsy DeVos, who I think many people sort of viewed skeptically, she has a background of kind of religious conservative activism, that she actually was standing up for continuing this guidance, and she was resistant to the idea of doing uh, 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 what was ultimately done, but ultimately uh, Trump sided with Sessions, and, you know, we have the uh, the news that came out today. Right. I had heard that, that, um, that DeVos did, you know, that that was the original, her original um, way that she was leaning, and I, uh, to me, it's, it's just kind of 
perplexing as <laughs> to begin no, I, with. I, I think it's an example of the phenomenon that we saw unfold over 20 years with uh, gay and lesbian rights and, and ultimately same-sex marriage. That is, um, uh, eventually uh, notions of equality and, and seeing people as human beings and understanding the impact on their dignity, uh, eventually that penetrates even into uh, the minds of many people who are otherwise conservative on issues or have religious perspectives on issues. Maybe we're starting to see that with transgender equality as well, that Betsy DeVos, despite uh, her generally conservative policy background, was actually able to see this issue in, in human terms and in terms of the, the potential human costs if uh, transgender students are, are, are not treated fairly. Uh, but as we said, her position in the end did not carry the day. Um, I frankly don't think that this is, uh, I, I don't think Trump really cares about policy one way or the other. I think Trump is, is somebody, though, who's an excellent politician. And I think he's calculated that the country is already, uh, the, the same-sex marriage debate is over, and there's nothing to be gained by trying to reopen that or trying to, to keep fighting that front. I think he recognizes that the situation is different with transgender equality, and this is just something that he can give to his base and to religious and social conservatives. At the end of the day, I don't think he has any strong policy views on this area. I think he views it entirely in terms of, well, you know, I want the gays and lesbians with me, but the transgender people, uh, it's more important that I have the social conservatives. Sure. Yeah, and I, we do know that uh, Mike Pence is significantly stronger in his opinions in that uh, case. Do you see maybe the Trump administration, uh, any future issues facing the LGBT community uh, because of Mike Pence's influence in that? Yeah, you know, I, I think anything – well, so, you know, uh, Congress may consider uh, uh, initiatives that are purported to strengthen religious liberty uh, and, and to uh, uh, to help uh, uh, religious conservatives resist gay and lesbian civil rights. We'll see what uh, uh, kind of weight the administration throws behind that. You know, in, in many different day-to-day decisions, executive branch agencies do things that end up potentially affecting LGBT rights uh, in, in ways that that are often maybe small. Uh, the, the Obama administration's State Department under Hillary Clinton took a very aggressive position promoting LGBT rights as human rights uh, in international forums like the UN. Um, we'll see uh, the extent to which Mike Pence uh, you know, tries to keep uh, 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 how committed he is on this issue to uh, 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 trying to, to roll back progress. And, and a lot of um, people out there are, as you mentioned earlier, uh, bringing up Jeff Sessions, you know, our attorney general, um, don't, they don't have a lot of faith in, uh, in, in things going real positive uh, where he's concerned. Not on this issue, not on LGBT issues. Right. He's a disaster. <laughs> well, um... any final thoughts on uh, the policy, the administration, and moving forward with the LGBTQ community? Well, I th- I, I, you know, this isn't uh, necessarily so much uh, the, the Trump administration. I just think the LGBT movement's at a really, really interesting time right now. Um, uh, the, the mayor 
marriage debate, you know, with with the there there is isolated resistance to it. Uh, there's still bad bills and bad laws in some red states that have to be fought back, uh, fought against. We have this uh, birth certificate issue now uh, that, that's going to the court of a federal court of appeals in Chicago. Indiana is refusing to treat uh, essentially the birth documentation that children of same-sex couples get in the same way as the birth documentation that children of opposite-sex couples get. So, so there are still fires to be put out, but um, I, I'm not sure that uh, uh, the LGBT movement nationally has kind of decided what its priorities are. In some sense, it is transgender equality and dignity, I think. In some sense, it's continuing to advance uh, the fight for anti-discrimination laws at the state and federal levels. I, I think one interesting phenomenon is there's been no talk whatsoever of an anti uh, of an LGBT anti-discrimination law in this session of the General Assembly. Evidently, the, the LGBT lobbying groups have just given up on that as a lost cause, mm. and, and neither side really wants to compromise and, and get maybe a partial solution and give a little bit and at least get something and try to come back later and get a stronger law after a few years. Um, th that issue just has gone completely silent in Indiana, which I think is unfortunate in some ways. Well, Steve, we um, unfortunately have to wrap things up, but um, we wanted to thank you for spending some really important time with us tonight, um, sharing um, what you've uh, been a part of with IU and continue to be a part of, and um, just all of the work that you're doing on these issues. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I always enjoy being with you guys. All right. Well, thank you. We'll look forward to it again. Thank you, Steve. And you are tuned into uh, WFHB listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana, volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Right now, current weather forecast. Before we take you back to blooming out at the top of the hour, it is 66 and a half degrees. Tonight, we'll have a low of about 60 with a stray shower and thunderstorm here and there. And we're going to take you right into blooming out. All right. Well, here is Grace Thumser with our continuing series, looking at positive news within the transgender community with Trans Spotlight. Welcome back to Trans Spotlight, your number one source for trans positivity. With the new year and new administration, we are all in need of some good news. First off, big news from the Lone Star State. Jess Erbst, mayor of the small town of New Hope, came out as transgender via a letter to her constituents. She had been out to a select few, but went into 2017 fully out and ready to lead her life and her town as Jess. She led her first town meeting out at the end of January, and while the town is historically conservative, she has reported that she has thus far been well-received. Some really incredible news for the youngest generation of gender warriors. The Boy Scouts of America will now allow transgender boys into the program, and the first trans member, nine-year-old Joe Maldonado, has already been enjoying the new acceptance. Before the reform, the New Jersey boy had previously been banned from entry due to parental opposition. The Boy Scouts of America date back over 100 years and have kept many of the original policies, such as referring to the gender on the birth certificate of applicants. The new policy allows the child to list their gender without certification. While the organization did not give support of trans boys as the reason for the change, and rather referred to legal ease, it has been making more progressive strides in the past, including acceptance of queer scouts and leaders, but only as recently as 2013 and 2015, respectively. The French Vogue Paris has featured the first transgender model to grace its cover on its March issue. 
The Brazilian model Valentina Sampaio is the cover girl of an article devoted to transgender beauty and how gender variance is taking over the fashion industry. The magazine reported, This month, we are proud to celebrate transgender beauty and how models like Valentina Sampaio, who is posing for her first ever Vogue cover, are changing the face of fashion and deconstructing prejudice. The magazine, which has circulated for 97 years, has been praised for the bold choice on the March issue, which is the second most important cover for fashion magazines. Sampaio had previously been featured on the cover of El Brazil and a L'Oreal Women's Day ad, but is now enjoying the notoriety of the prestigious Vogue cover. At the upcoming New York Toy Fair, a new jazz doll will be introduced. Tonner Doll Company will be debuting the doll based on Jazz Jennings, a teenage trans girl who has brought significant attention to transgender youth and rights through her appearances with her family and a children's book about gender. The doll was reportedly designed by CEO Robert Tonner, who has followed Jazz's story since the special on 2020 when she was only six years old. Tonner cites Jazz's story as his awakening to the importance of transgender rights and has stated that Jazz stands for everything I respect from a human nature point of view. She's incredibly brave, intelligent, warm-hearted, and creative. The doll will be available in stores in July and before that on Tonner Doll Co.'s website. This will be the first LGBTQ plus doll. From Blooming Out, I'm Grace Thumser, and thank you for listening to Trans Spotlight. Well, thank you, Grace, for your continuing series. I am uh, fortunate to have yeah. Grace in the studio with me. And listening to that and the, the previous series that you've, that you've been doing, um, these are really, really very important issues right now. What made you interested in doing something like this for us? Well, um, I think that there's definitely a lot of uh, things going on in the news with um, transgender rights lately. It's a lot of really a turning point in um, the LGBT movement, um, specifically for the T. And um, there's, you hear a lot of things in policy and rights, a lot of negative things. And I was interested in doing... A, positive news uh, spin right. on that. Um, well, there's a lot of yeah. misinformation out there, right? Absolutely. The, and, and of course, the, the, um, the people that are, are against the uh, transgender community, they, of course, l like to create mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, so it, it is, it is, it's good to, to actually, you know, hear dare I use the the f word fact <laughs> well, you know yeah. really true true facts I think um, it's really important to celebrate what is happening positively in the trans community and what trans people are doing and um, you know furthering the notoriety and the uh, the po just the positive things that go on in the trans community every day because there's always positive things to report on that um, don't always get reported because right. there are other negative things, but. Right. Well, no. um, we are, um, well, we're looking forward to continuing this, this series and, and hearing all of the, uh, the, the, the episodes that you're creating. Thank you yeah, for, thank for you. working on those important, um, projects. So, um, it's now time for our next music break here on Blooming Out. And for this, we have the intro to the song coming from Fader. Um, 
it's uh zuzu zuzu right zuzu yeah, it's spelled so. x-i-u zuzu new single get up is shadowy and invigorating and filled with self-depreciation but it's more of an ode to friendship than anything this song is a back and forth between myself and bandmates angela and shana who are also my best friends and stewart told uh, the fader via email she says i am a pain yet they are deeply patient kind and encouraging while never allowing my peculiarities temper or bossiness to trample over their day when i behave badly or pathetically they roll their eyes flick holy water from their fingers and eternally say well get up or don't i like that the show's producer john congleton told the fader that while mixing get up he had to hold back the tears every time we got to the section where Jamie says, you're the only reason I was born. Jamie always has a way of saying something so succinct in a, a way that is soul crushing. So their full length album, Forget, comes out tomorrow. And with Get Up, here is Zuzu.
Support for Blooming Out and WFHB comes from the back door, downtown Bloomington's queerest bar, dance club, and venue. From live bands and DJs to drag shows and karaoke, there is something for everyone every day of the week. The back door is located at 207 South College in the alley behind Atlas Bar, and more information can be found on Facebook or online at bckdoor.com. Blooming Out is also supported by the Quarryland Men's Chorus, Bloomington's premier chorus for gay, bi, and trans men and their allies. More information can be found at quarryland.org. We now turn to our producer, Ryan Shaddy, with tonight's LGBTQ plus headlines. In national news, the Trump administration yesterday revoked federal guidelines specifying that transgender students have the right to use public school restrooms that match their gender identity. The two-page letter from the administration, which is set to go to the nation's public schools, asserts that the earlier guidance lacked extensive legal analysis, did not go through a public vetting process, caused confusion, and drew legal challenges. The Justice Department and Education Departments wrote that there must be, quote, due regard for the primary role of the states and local school districts in establishing educational policy. Both Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos released statements expressing the same deference to state and local officials. The letter was the source of some disagreement between the two issuing departments, with Sessions eager to rescind the Obama administration's guidance as court proceedings in related cases approach, 
and DeVos keen to leave it in place. The Obama administration's guidance was based on the position that barring students from restrooms that match their gender identities is a violation of Title IX because it amounts to sex discrimination. The Trump administration is rescinding the guidance weeks after the White House issued a statement declaring Trump is, quote, respectful and supportive of LGBTQ rights. Transgender rights supporters demonstrated in front of the White House late Wednesday after the guidance was revoked. According to Reuters, demonstrators included Gavin Grimm, whose landmark transgender rights case is being considered by the U.S. Supreme Court. Grimm said he was disappointed that the Trump administration is withdrawing the guidance. The Gloucester, Virginia school board continued to bar him from the boys' restroom even after the Obama guidance was issued. But Grimm said, quote, It certainly bolstered hope that the future for transgender students was looking up in a way that it hadn't been previously, end quote. The decision to withdraw the guidance could be an initial signal of the Trump administration's position in the case before the Supreme Court known as Gloucester County Schools versus GG, which resulted from transgender student Grimm suing his high school to use the restroom consistent with his gender identity. The question before the court is to evaluate whether the prohibition of sex discrimination under Title IX applies to transgender students. Many advocates say the Obama-era guidance merely formalized what lower courts have increasingly recognized, that discrimination against gay and transgender people is a form of sex discrimination because it is rooted in stereotypes about men and women. Kara Kiesling, executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality, said, quote, This doesn't take away trans kids' rights. It's Title IX that protects us, not Donald Trump or Attorney General Sessions agreeing with us on Title IX. Fifteen states have explicitly have explicit protections for transgender students, according to the Human Rights Campaign. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, legislators in 14 states filed 20 bills that could lead to restroom restrictions for transgender people, with some proposing that states penalize schools that violate those restrictions. So far, five of those bills have failed. Fewer U.S. teens attempted suicide in states where same-sex marriage was legal in the years leading up to the 2015 Supreme Court ruling upholding gay marriage, according to a study published Monday in JAMA Pediatrics. Analyzing data from 1999 to 2015, researchers found a 7% reduction in suicide attempts among high school students in the 32 states that legalized same-sex marriage. Laws that have the greatest impact on gay adults may make gay teens feel, quote, more, helpful for, more hopeful for the future, end quote. Lead author Julia Reifman, a researcher at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, told the Associated Press. Regar- researchers analyzed data from more than 700,000 adolescents across 47 states, of which 231,413 identified as gay, lesbian, or bisexual, The data didn't track students who identified as queer or transgender. Researchers acknowledged the study was limited in that they relied on self-reported data from students. The study stated, There is a need for further research to understand the association between sexual minority rights, stigma, and sexual minority health. This week, gay conservative writer Milo Yiannopoulos resigned from Breitbart, which is a conservative news source, lost a book contract with Simon & Schuster, and lost a high-profile speaking engagement at the 2017 Conservative Political Action Conference 
after past remarks resurfaced, showing him seemingly praising pedophilia. During an online video chat, given wide exposure over the weekend, Yiannopoulos referenced his own relationship with a priest as a teenager. He said, quote, in the homosexual world, particularly, some of those relationships between younger boys and older men, the sort of, quote, coming of age relationships, the relationships in which those older men help those young boys to discover who they are and give them security and safety and provide them with love and reliable sort of rock, end quote. Matthew Schlapp, chairman of the annual CPAC, canceled Yiannopoulos' speech and told Fox News he couldn't defend those remarks. Schlapp said, quote, It certainly sounded to us that he was trying to mainstream something as offensive as pedophilia. End quote. Retired University of California Davis professor Gregory Herrick, a social psychologist, analyzed studies on both sides of the claim that there is a link between homosexuality and pedophilia. He concluded that there is no scientific basis to assert that gay and bisexual men are more likely than heterosexual men to molest children. In an October 2015 interview on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, Yiannopoulos praised a strong Christian heritage and said, quote, If I could choose, I wouldn't be a homosexual. I don't think it's self-loathing to acknowledge that being homosexual is obviously a sort of, of apparent sexuality something that Mother Nature does on the fringes, end quote. Yiannopoulos is a self-proclaimed troll and proponent of free speech. Twitter banned Yiannopoulos last year for provoking a racist social media campaign against comedian Leslie Jones, and his Breitbart archives contain frequent articles designed to demean and offend that feminism makes women ugly, that he would prefer it if teenagers self-harmed rather than discuss trans issues on Tumblr, and that women will be happy if we uninvent the birth, birth control pill and the washing machine. That is it for tonight's news. Our news director is Noel Phillips, and I'm producer Ryan Chatty with this week's LGBTQ Plus news headlines. Thank you, Ryan. It's now time for our final music break of the evening with the intro coming from NPR. The notion of utopia doesn't have a lot of currency these days, but that hasn't stopped Katie. Stelmanis, the creative force behind the Canadian electronic outfit Ostra. She used the project's new album, Future Politics, to foment a kind of radicalism in an age of doom and gloom, making music that questions, confronts, and uplifts without scaremongering or sugarcoating. She's also not being shy. Utopia the album's lead single telegraphs her intent with unabashed optimism. Amid sculpting beats and soaring melodies, Stelmanis sings of urban life and alienation in an era of social division and an injustice. But she's militant about lining those dark clouds with silver. The record's atmospheric sprawl feels more immersive than ever, but still has its share of relatively upbeat cuts. These 11 songs offer a bracing, cool, tuneful vision of tomorrow that refuses to submit to inertia. In an era when simply resisting dystopia can seem idealistic, future politics dares to hope big. Here is Ostra's Utopia.
Farifar, Napis Bitutrox.
to Ostra's newest hit, Utopia, here on Blooming Out. To finish out tonight's show, it's time for your weekly LGBTQ plus um, area event calendar. Tonight at 7 p.m., the Transgender Advocacy Group invites you to a forum to evaluate where we are in our progress in making our campus and housing more supportive for students. Feedback will be collected about what future priorities should be. This is the second of two forums. This event will be held at the LGBTQ Culture Center. Youth ages 12 to 20 are invited to PRISM Youth Community's Winter Ball. The ball is a free event featuring music, a photo booth, and a dessert bar. Dress up or come casual. Bring a date, come with friends, or come alone. PRISM's Winter Ball will be held at Rhino's All Ages Club tomorrow, Friday, February 24th, beginning at 8 p.m. More information available on Facebook. IU's Feminist Student Association will be performing Eve Ensler's Vagina Monologues in Woodburn Hall on February 24th and 25th. Cost is $8 for IU students and faculty, $10 for non-students faculty. All proceeds will be donated to Bloomington's Middle Way House, a domestic violence shelter. More information can be found on Facebook. On Sunday, join DJ Aaron Tilford at Monsieur. Monsieur is a weekly event at the Root Cellar Lounge beneath Farm Bloomington. DJ Tilford will start spinning the beats beginning early at uh, 6 p.m. on this Sunday because it's a special Oscars night edition and the bar is going to open early with a viewing party in the back room. There will be a, a special Oscars menu available until 9 p.m. and as always, there will be no cover. And finally, Cory Land Men's Course will be holding their second annual Cabaret and Cabernet on Thursday, March the 2nd from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Oliver Winery. The cost is $45 and includes a drink and hors d'oeuvres. This annual major fundraiser helps the course raise money for new music, musical selections, educational programming, and travel around the state. More information can be found at coryland.org. That's all the time we have for this evening. We'd like to thank you for tuning in tonight. If you're interested in volunteering here at WFHB or for our show, contact volunteer at wfhb.org. You can also call us at 812-323-1200, tweet us at bloomingoutwfhb, visit our Blooming Out Facebook page, or find us on Instagram. The executive producer of Blooming Out is Joe Crawford. The producer is Ryan Shaddy. The associate producer and board engineer is Sarah Hetrick. The news director is Noelle Phillips. Finally, our theme music is an original composition produced for Blooming Out by Aaron Gage. For Blooming Out and Jeff Poling, I'm Grace Thumser. Please tune in again, again next Thursday at 5.30 p.m. and visit us online at bloomingout.com. Blooming Out. Indiana's only LGBTQ plus radio program airs every Thursday evening here on WFHB at 5.30 p.m. You can also stream us 24 hours a day, seven days a week on WFHB.org or BloomingOut.com. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week to Blooming Out.